Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Maybe you want to get a piece of that. Pretty good. I want to talk about sexy teens. I was getting erections. It's a very creepy feeling. I can guarantee that underwear theft will come up again. None of this is relevant. Pokemon, Pokeballs. 750 milliliter bottle of rum. Welcome to the Velocity Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy uncle Peter. He will say words at you. My opening thought for today is quite short. It's when you are filming video, the best way to ruin your video, because usually these are unexpected events, and these are the ones that, that sort of catch the imagination of the internet because someone's gotten hit in the nuts or they've, they've fallen down. And everyone, everyone takes great joy in that. Everyone loves to see someone get hurt. If it's particularly dramatic, the people who are filming, the first thing they do is start moving, but they will take the camera away from the action. That's a problem. So if you're going to be callous and film it, film it properly. Because I've always found fail videos fascinating, but one of the things I'm actually looking for isn't the fail, it's the reaction of the supposed friends around the person who is failing. Because there's only two responses. One, you find it hilarious. Two, you actually have concern for your friend. So if you fall off your motorcycle where you were trying to do a backflip, and everyone starts laughing at you, I don't think you have very good friends. If you attempt to do a skateboard jump over a car and smash through the window, and everyone shows great concern for you, those are better friends. But if you are the callous person who finds it funny, don't let your laughter jiggle the camera. Don't take the camera away from the action. Don't start running and then we see these like streaks of road and streaks of sky and streaks of road because you're running with the camera. Keep the camera on the action. Don't immediately start screaming, I got that on video. And even worse is, I just got that on video. For some reason, that statement annoys me more than the first one. But even worse is some other person shouting, did you get that on video? So if you're a callous, horrible human being that wants to entertain the internet, at least do a good job. Do not immediately start screaming, did you get that? I got that. I just got that. Because now I hate you. I hate your friends. I hate everything about your life because you've just done the internet wrong. Core question. I've never seen nunchucks used seriously in a fight. Is the weapon more for show and hitting yourself in the nuts? This is a surprisingly good question because yes, you don't see nunchucks in serious fights but that leads me to a first primary follow-up question of how many serious fights do you see because in my very normal life like i walk around day to day i go to work i don't see any serious fights so at what point are you seeing any serious fights and that takes me to the next point what do you consider a serious fight because any fight that i i guess you're seeing these in the street would be pretty serious because even if they're two drunk dudes beating each other around the head that could end up in death just by accident so i mean all those fights are serious unless you mean like a fight to the death like the kung fu movies do but you've never seen one of those because they're not real and they only happen in movies 
The other, the only other place you could see a serious fight is some kind of sanctioned event. Most sanctioned events don't use weapons. It's MMA, it's karate, it's something like that. So you're never going to see nunchucks used there. You're never going to see a nunchuck fight that's sanctioned by a, any sort of governing body because the whole point of a nunchuck is it increases rotation and stuff and you crack a guy in the head, it'll probably kill him. I mean, that is two pieces of wood, solid wood, attached to a chain, and you smack him, and the idea is to, like, crack his skull. So the reason you don't see nunchucks is, A, people don't carry them around day to day. I think it's illegal in most places. B, any sanctioned governing body isn't going to allow the use of a deadly weapon in their tournament, unless it's the kick fighter kumite, which we all know is a fight to the death. There's only one survivor. The secondary problem is that nunchucks are a very high skill thing to use. So it takes years and years of practice to get good enough at them that you could actually hit someone and actually do it right. Which would actually lead me to a secondary assumption is that really nunchucks aren't that practical. You could use a stick more effectively with less skill so it would make a lot more sense to use a stick if you were in this serious fight that you're claiming happens. So I think the reason that you don't see nunchucks in a serious fight is they're not a very good choice and you're probably not allowed to walk around with them and there are other things that would actually work better at hand. Because if you're in such a fight that you need to hit someone with something, my first thought would be a chair or a bar stool or whatever is around that I could just throw at them which would mean I wouldn't even have to engage in the fight very seriously at the start. There are lots of things you are going to see in kung fu movies that you're not going to see in real life because that's why they're in kung fu movies. They look really cool. They're very exciting. They use these weapons. Think about all the other weapons in kung fu movies that you've never seen in a serious fight, like a sword. Now, I actually think a sword, the basic usage of which would be simpler than nunchucks. So it would make more sense if you were going to be having that serious fight to bring a sword. But of course, it's got the same problems. It's not practical to walk around with a sword. You're going to get in trouble for that. You aren't, but I still keep going back to the first point. There aren't that many serious fights. Serious fights shouldn't be happening to you regularly. You should not be seeing serious fights regularly. Because if you do, you should move. I mean, there is a different issue here. If you're seeing serious fights on a regular basis, you're in a bad environment. And you should get out of that environment. Core question. My 12-year-old son is threatening to break his PS3 unless I buy him a brand new PS4. What should I do? Should I listen to him and buy a new one? I think a couple of weeks ago, maybe even last week, I answered a nearly identical question. And it had to do more with the kids threatening you with breaking something that's valuable to him to get a new, more valuable thing. So as far as I'm concerned, let him break it because then you just don't buy him a new one. Now he has nothing. So who cares? So the kid's dumb and he'll learn a lesson. The secondary issue is the kid's comfortable threatening you. And that is a power relationship problem that you need to fix. Seeing this identical question slightly rephrased a couple of times, because this isn't the second time I've seen it. This is actually the third or fourth over a couple of weeks. I've started to notice that on these questions, there are sort of trends. So it's almost like someone's trying to get the right formula to make a question that will be popular to get so whatever the fake internet points are on Quora. And this one feels particularly fake. 
because it follows the last question structure so closely. So there's no reason to answer it. You could actually go listen to the other answer and you'd have the answer. It would just apply. Uh, the other kid was threatening to sh shut off the internet in the house or something. This kid's threatening to break his PS3. I mean, as a parent, the PS3 is more valuable to the kid than it is to you probably. And if he breaks it, well, he can't play games anymore. So screw him. I mean, this is like me taking a, a gun or an axe and threatening to blow off my hand or cut off my hand if you don't give me something I want. And at the end of the day, who gets punished if I ruin my hand? Well, it's really just me. So, honestly, go ahead. When I was about 16 or 17, I lived in a city called Ottawa in Canada. Ottawa is on the border with Hull. Hull is in Quebec. The drinking age in Quebec is 18 years old. The drinking age in Ontario, where Ottawa is, is 19 years old. Thing is, you can walk over a bridge to get from Ottawa to Hull, which means you could walk for about half an hour from downtown and you have just shaved a year off your drinking limit. Then you can walk back to Ottawa and they can't really do anything because you're already drunk, but you've had your drinks over there where it's perfectly legal. So basically, there are a lot of people walking across that bridge who are also dancing along the gray area of morality. The secondary thing you learn by living in Ottawa Hull is that the people in Hull don't really check ID very often. I am not encouraging underage drinking, but I had a really good time underage drinking. And I did a lot of underage drinking because basically if you could grow a beard, and at 17 I could, you could buy alcohol without getting carded. I had a friend who could grow a really good mustache. So basically we relied on him, but I could manage it in a pinch. I was out one evening with a friend of mine named James Tate and we were really, really drunk and we were walking back from Hull to Ottawa. So we crossed the bridge. Now we decided first it would be a good idea to spit off the bridge. And my friend James spit his hat off. So he leaned back really far because he wanted to get as much distance as possible and then he spit as hard as he could and the hat he was wearing flew off into the river below. I said, oh no, James, what are we going to do now? James said a quote that for some reason I've remembered my whole life. Now we walk. So we kept going back into Ottawa, but we had no money because we'd spent it all on a, the paltry amount of alcohol we could afford. So we needed something to do for the rest of the evening. Now this was wintertime, so it was very cold. So it was great if we could do something inside. And as we walked along the main strip downtown, we found that someone was inviting us in. And this seemed to our drunk alcohol-addled minds like a good idea. What it was, that was the local Scientology Center, and they were offering free personality tests. And what do two drunk young men want more than anything else? Free personality tests. So we went in, and we enjoyed a short film. I think it was about 30 minutes long, about Scientology and Dianetics and L. Ron Hubbard. And then we took our personality tests. Now, being drunk, I do remember bits, but I don't know if this is all accurate information. You'll have to take everything in this story with a grain of salt, because it's all colored by the veil of alcohol. So the things I think I said, maybe I didn't say. Or the reactions I got to the things I said might not have been the real reactions. But we took the personality test. And I remember I purposely, because most personality tests are kind of structured the same way. They have questions that seem to repeat that are illogical in their structure to confuse you. So like, if you weren't not going to do something, so it's a double negative, so it's a positive. They have those kind of questions a lot. 
What they're trying to do is get you confused so you answer the question more honestly. I, had studied, I hadn't studied psychology yet, but even I as a kid kind of knew that stuff. Because what they're trying to do on real, you know, legitimate tests is filter out information that might be biased. So they ask you the same question in a bunch of different ways in the hopes of getting, if you give a consistent answer, then it's probably true. But if your answer is inconsistent, then it's not true anymore. Because what they have to do is try to get through that filter of you trying to appear like a good person. Because everyone, regardless of whether they want to or not, tries to look good on these kind of tests and surveys and stuff. So psychology is all about deception. Now, this is not legitimate psychology. This is Dianetics and Scientology. So I did the test, and then we had our individual interviews. Now, this was actually a little scary. I didn't really want to do this because I was in, you know, because we were both in a state where we weren't working at peak mental capacity. But the conversation I ended up having with the young man, with the man who had not necessarily administered the test, but actually taken the results and came to talk to us, was interesting. So at that time, I was young, and what I wanted to be when I grew up was an author. And I don't know if I told him that or I wrote it down, but he had that information. And he said to me, in a hopes of sort of uh, impressing me with L. Ron Hubbard's body of work, did you know L. Ron Hubbard has written over 400 books in his life? Now, 400 books or 500 books, whatever, the number was massive, the amount of books he had produced. Now, my immediate reaction was to say, he must not have put much thought into each book, which is a really insulting thing to do and a really awful thing to say to someone who, you're basically talking about this guy's God, their religious leader, and he's saying, look at how productive he was, look at how prodigious his, his writing was. And yet my instinct was, if he's producing that many volumes of text, he's not actually putting much thought into each volume. Now his side, from the, the Scientologist side, was he didn't have to because his ideas were so perfectly formed to begin with. He was writing just perfect books. They didn't need to be edited. He could just write and write and write and write. It was all perfect. Whereas I, being someone who struggled with words, and most of my favorite authors maybe produced 10 books in their lifetime, if that, saw that volume did not equal quality. I immediately insulted the quality of L. Ron Hubbard's books. I hadn't read any of them, so I didn't actually have that opinion. It was just my first instinct. I did later go on to read the Dianetics book and I think one or two of his science fiction books, and they are awful. He clearly did not put a lot of thought into them. The Dianetics book particularly is really, really poorly thought out. And if you haven't heard about it, basically the idea is that we suffer trauma in the womb, and then that trauma stays with us our whole life, and you have to go through this process to get rid of that trauma, but it can go back into past lives and ghosts, and then you get into the weird, like, souls being poured into volcano stuff, but that's high-level stuff. You don't learn about that in the book. The first Dianetics book is all false psychology stuff. Um, it is interesting to read, but it is a big book, and it's quite boring, and that, after that, the gentleman was not as enamored with the idea of me joining Scientology. And you think Scientology at that time really couldn't be that picky. They needed as many people as they could. I know they have focused on specifically famous people, and that's to bolster their image. So what they said to us was basically you can pay like an enormous amount of money to join Scientology and do some tests, and we would get clear and we would be, you know, free from all the stress we had felt up to that point in our lives. 
And of course, I was 17 years old and I had summer jobs and I was going to school and stuff. So I didn't have any money to speak of for reals. I mean, all the money for my week, all my disposable cash went into whatever the bottle we had bought that night was and drank. So I'd already drunk all my money for that week, probably that month. So that tack wasn't going to work. So what he then proposed was we could work at the Scientology Center to pay off the debt that we would accumulate by doing the things to give us sort of sound mental health. And this was where my second sort of social faux pas was. Now, some people think I don't have the greatest filter now. You really would not have enjoyed talking to me when I was in my late teens because the idea of a filter was offensive to me at that time. So I said whatever I thought, as awful as it could be, and my general accusation towards Scientology and the Scientologist who had spent his evening with me was that if they actually cared about people's mental health, if they actually wanted to make people better, they wouldn't be charging any money for it once they had this stuff set up. Because I knew that you, there was a box and you held onto these two rods and that helped clean out your, your engrams or something. But it didn't seem like that would cost that much money. So you could just do that for everyone and then everyone would be happy again and the world would be a better place. So I was actually accusing them of holding back the technology they had to make everyone better in an attempt to make money, which then obviously defeated the purpose of making everyone happy. Because if you really wanted to make everyone happy, you wouldn't charge anyone for it. This very much feeds into my views on religion, specifically churches, and the idea of Jesus, because Jesus's philosophy is very antithetical to the way churches are run, in my opinion, primarily because most churches collect money that they do not redistribute, which does seem to be the whole thing Jesus was kind of all about. But in the same vein, Scientology was claiming it wanted to make the world a better place, but it was holding back the ability to achieve that through their technology, unless you, you know, sort of hit that paywall. When it became very clear that I was not going to give Scientology any money, and it was clear because I didn't have any money to give them, we weren't disposed of. We were, you know, let go. And the secondary thing is myself and James Tate, we were not vulnerable young men. We weren't people who had, you know, troubled backgrounds or were looking for something or were seeking out something to substitute for love. We were just really drunk and had nothing to do and it was cold outside. So we weren't actually the target demographic for Scientologists coming off the street and doing their personality tests. I have not gone back and done a personality test since sober. And not because I'm offended by the idea, but it's more I don't want to spend that much time. But I would really now, after having had some education, like to go back and take the test and see what I can actually suss out from it. See if it's an actual personality test. See if it's just a bunch of random questions because they're just trying to keep you there so they can talk to you to get you to join join their pay for happiness service. Because make no mistake, if they actually cared about people, they wouldn't make you pay for the technology they already have. So that was my first, last, and only experience with Scientology, other than reading the book, which I do not recommend. You can read it, but you have to sort of like brace yourself for what's coming. But what, one of the things I did learn was that if you wanted to impress me as a kid, it was quality over quantity and altruism above money. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at Velocipeter or email velocipodcast at gmail.com.
You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to velocipeter.com slash podcast. I mean, that is two pieces of wood, solid wood, attached to a train, uh, attached to a chain, 